0: Well, good morning. Question for you as we begin today. Uh, how good are you at judging distances? Just think about that for a minute. A good skill to have in sports like curling, lawn darts. Some of you remember that. Judging distances is helpful for many things. I, uh, I remember Gramp on our farm in Care uh, River. We had an old tractor that... Uh, didn't have brakes, and it wasn't our main tractor. We didn't use it very often, so Dad didn't feel like it was really necessary to put the money into it to put brakes in it. So you had to just be really good at judging distances. You had to put the clutch in at the right time, and you had to do this mental calculation in your head all the time about how much weight are you towing, what is the ground like, what elevation or incline are you at, and how far away is that fence or the front of the shed that the tractor goes in. And you had to put the clutch in at the right time and just kind of roll it to a stop. So judging distances became really important and uh, really significant uh, for us on that farm with that tractor. Uh, did you know that when you are standing somewhere and you look at the distance at the horizon, you can only see three to four miles before the horizon dips down out of sight? Did you know that? So if you're on a lake and standing on a shore and you're roughly six feet tall, you can only see three or four miles, and then because of the curvature of the earth that, that the horizon actually starts to dip. Now, if there are trees on the other side, you need to add about, you have to about double that, so you can see about eight miles. So if you can't see the other shore of a lake, you know that it's more than eight miles across if it dips down below the horizon. little tidbit for you there. Um, also, uh, you, sometimes people ask you the question, well, is that in walking distance? Right? You ever had that question? Go somewhere, and I've thought of that, and I thought, you know, actually, everything's in walking distance if you have the time. Regina, that's in walking distance, bundle up, give yourself a few days, you'll get there. So distance, measuring distance, how do you do that? I was at a, uh, a meeting this week and talking to some people, and we got onto the conversation about uh, being in a buffalo impound or a, a compound where there was free-range buffalo there. And they said that the guide told them that the way that you judge whether you are a safe distance from the buffalo or not is you put out your thumb, and if you can cover the buffalo in your thumb, you're at a safe distance. If you can see the buffalo outside your thumb, you are not far enough away, right? So there's a way to do that. Now, sometimes that's true with people too, right? And you kind of go, those people are a little bit dangerous. So when you see somebody coming up to you and going, okay, can I see you? No, you're a little too close because I can see you around my thumb, right? So judging distance, you know, can happen in a whole variety of different ways, right? Telling how far or near something is, is challenging, but it also at times can be helpful. What about your heart? How do you judge where your heart is when it comes to being near or far away from God? What is it that you can sort of use as a guide? What's the the thumb scale that you can kind of put out there and kind of get an estimation of how far away or how near am I to God. That's some of what we want to explore today in our series in Ephesians uh, called The Mystery of the Church. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, the last part of this chapter, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 11 uh, to the end of the chapter and looking at this question of, of far away and near and the language that Paul uses in this text about that and, and some of the things that he means about that when it comes to the church, when it comes to our own walk with God as well. So let's read from uh, first of all eleven to thirteen. Paul says, Therefore, remember that you formerly that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Paul starts off by saying, remember. He says, remember. And it actually begins that section by he says, therefore. Well, what preceded that is a fair question to ask. Last week, Kevin talked about the section that was before that, which is this simple but profound gospel message of the reality of our sin, and the need for grace that we all have. And so last week we saw in that teaching that that we all are rebellious towards God, that there is within our human nature this rebellion towards God, and that we are actually deserving of God's wrath. But it is only because of the grace of God that we have been brought near to God through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. So then Paul says, therefore, remember, now as you look at this text in context you realize he's talking primarily to the gentiles and he's saying remember your former identity remember who it is that you have been labeled to be You know it's the only explicit text apparently in scripture Ephesians 2:11 that actually tells us to remember our former plight that actually tells us to remember that state of sin that we have been in It's interesting And it's important to remember because part of sin's delusion is to keep us unaware of sin, actually, in our lives. So remembering our identity is a key to loving and knowing and worshiping God. And part of that is even remembering the reason we need God's grace, which is what Paul's getting to. Memories can be paths to success, they can help us move forward, but they can also be scars that disable us, and we know that. So we don't remember that former life for its own sake or to wallow in that memory, And and nor do those memories define us or hold us back, but they remind us that we are free and they allow us to focus on Christ and what he has done, to see grace, to receive it, to embrace it, and to live out of that. We've often talked about this truth that we cannot always choose what happens to us, but we can choose, at least to some degree, the power that we will give, give to it in terms of how it will impact our lives. Even Paul had to do that. Paul often remembers, there's a number of scriptures where he goes back to his own identity, goes back to his history. He talks about his credentials in in terms of the Roman culture and those kinds of things. He talks about the fact that he was the worst of sinners persecuting the church and killing Christians. And so Paul a number of times remembers even his own life and some of his own past in order to proclaim this gospel. Because he says, that's who I was, but I am no longer that anymore. And so Paul himself teaches us and models for us this pattern of remembering. And so we're called to remember. You know, this was a culture of name-calling in many ways. I don't know if it was overt or I don't know if it was subtle. I'm not exactly sure. But we get from this text and we know from other texts that between the Jews and the Gentiles, it was definitely a culture of of name-calling. The Gentiles were called the uncircumcised. Interesting name. I don't think we hear that too much today. But they were looked down upon by the Jews. The circumcised. Their circumcision they felt quite good about. Maybe even prideful about. They were part of this covenant of Abraham. They were part of this call of God, the blessing of the people of Israel. But as it says in Scripture, it was a circumcision that only affected their bodies and it actually didn't affect their hearts. So Paul's reminding these Gentiles to remember. Remember what you were because you're different now. Remember the names that you've been called. Remember that you were once outside the covenant, not part of the citizenship, that you were without hope, without God, that you were far away, but now you are in Christ. And what was once far away is now near to God. This is part of God's plan, that you be part of this blessing, this promise. It's a new day for a new people. But let's keep reading as we read in uh, verse 14 and following. Paul continues, he says, For he himself is our peace, speaking of Jesus, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. That's what Paul says. Jesus is our peace. You know, as you see this text and you recognize this gospel of peace and the ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about, that Jesus proclaims and walks in, we realize that peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. We can work and do all kinds of things to try to reduce conflict and try to minimize and so on. But it is the presence of Jesus. When Jesus breaks in in a remarkable way, it changes the landscape. These were these two groups of Jews and Gentiles who had this huge barrier in so many ways. They were estranged and distant from each other. There was name-calling, there was disdain, there was sort of this disregard for the other in this culture of how they grew up and sort of lived together, which was very separate. They they looked down their noses at each other with sort of disgust for all kinds of reasons. For centuries of traditions and baggage that sort of piled up. And now the solution is a nearness to God. The solution is, uh, is of putting your lives in Jesus and how it changes everything in Christ. I can only imagine that that people who were hearing this message and who listened to this letter being written to them, they were probably saying, okay, whoa, 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 Paul, that's not a good idea. Like, you don't understand. Like, you don't understand the animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles. I mean, these are people who truly hate each other. How can this be good? How can this be actually the church? How is this the new covenant people when you have these people who really despise each other in that way? But it's only because of Jesus. It's only because of what Christ has done on the cross. And again, this inclusion of the Gentiles is no afterthought of God. It is something that Paul makes clear and we'll, we'll see it even in chapter 3 and as we continue on in Ephesians of how this was God's design from the very beginning. Those far and near now come together. They come together to the Father because of what Jesus has done. And this is peace and the life with God the way God intended it. This is the church the way God intended it. Biblical peace is solely based on the person, work, and presence of Jesus. Christ proclaims peace, He makes peace, and He is our peace. You might be familiar with the Old Testament term. It's a beautiful term called shalom. And it means peace, but it means peace in a very comprehensive, holistic kind of way. The way life should be in all of its wholeness in terms of life and relationships, life with God and life with others, only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. And people being in Christ and the Spirit coming alive in them. And So shalom is a very uh, comprehensive term experienced in the presence of Jesus. So Paul, he seeks to connect Christ and peace closely and comprehensively as possible. And, and, And peace is central to Paul's teaching over and over again. We see that. Shalom, the peace of Christ be upon you. We see that going back to the Old Testament with the blessings that were given in that way. Peace leads to a kind of unity amongst different people. That is remarkable. That kind of peace, that kind of shalom is only possible, again, through Jesus Christ. There was a a group of us earlier this week that spent... uh, About three and a half days at a camp at Christopher Lake praying together. And some of you were aware of that and were praying for us, and thank you for that. We talked about it, I mentioned that last week, that a group of pastors, uh, it's a Saskatoon prayer summit it was called. The first one actually started in 1993, and there's only been one other one since then. The last one I think was 12 years ago. It doesn't happen very often, but it's remarkable when you get a group of pastors from the churches in the city and they come together and they pray. And one of the main things that we spent time praying for was just this unity and this peace among the churches. And you know, in 1993, people point back to that prayer summit that happened so many years ago, and they say that was a turning point for our city. When the churches and the pastors of our city gained unity and blessing and working together in a whole different way. And it's changed us. I hear over and over again people who come to different churches here, like pastors who come to the city of Saskatoon from other settings, and they often will comment about that. They'll say, there's something different in this city. Actually, you pastors like each other. Like, you actually get along. And, and, and you churches actually have a great deal of unity. And it's true. It's not perfect unity, but it, it, it's true. It's not unity at all costs, meaning that, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, we'll have unity together. No, no, it's, it's unity in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And unity around who Jesus is, but it's very real despite our differences i said to a number of people, that's why when, you know, when people talk to me and as people you know, kind of sometimes shift through churches in the city here and so on, I like to often say to people when they say, well, they've come from a certain church, it's like, oh yeah, I know that pastor, he's a friend of mine. That's my first comment. In other words, don't say anything bad about my friend. Because we talk. We bless each other. We encourage each other. We pray together. There is a, a, a unity in this city among our churches that is actually quite remarkable. And it's the body of Christ living out this Text, living out these truths, understanding what it means to walk in this ministry of reconciliation, this gospel of peace that Christ has called us to, that He is pointing us to. I think Paul's theology of unity was far stronger than we often realize. He saw unity as so important. He would often say things like, Live a life worthy of your calling. We'll get into Ephesians 4 later on in this series, which talks about this. One body, one Lord, one faith, one gospel, one baptism. Unity is so important to Paul. He's preaching about it all the time. Unity is so important that Jesus, in his last prayer that we have recorded in John 17, when he's praying before his crucifixion, what does he pray for? He prays for the apostles that were there with him at that time, that he was discipling and encouraging and preparing for this great commission that he was giving them. And he prays, Lord, would they be one, as you and I are one, so that the world would know. And he prays for the church. He prays for those that will come after, those that will follow. And he says, would you give them unity? Would you give them reconciliation? Would you give them this gospel of oneness, of peace that is pervasive throughout the church so that the world would know? That they wouldn't compromise their witness. In fact, their witness would be so enhanced because the remarkable unity that you have given them. That's true with, between churches. That's true among churches within churches. Individual churches, and that's what Paul is teaching here again. You know, in 1989, many of you will remember the remarkable day when the Berlin Wall came down and it began to come down. And for those of us with, uh, with German backgrounds, it's even more remarkable as you think about that. And some people have strong connections back to that part of the world. And, and, and this remarkable event that people thought was absolutely incomprehensible. Like, I could never imagine that actually happening. These people who were so similar in people that they were so close together and yet they were so far away from each other because of this dividing wall that was there between them. And then it starts to be dismantled and to be torn down and this coming together of these people who had lived so separate for so long. I think as remarkable as that event in history has been, what Paul is teaching about here and what he is pointing these people to here was even more remarkable i'm sure these jews and gentiles were going you have no idea the wall that divides us that divides us as two people and yet paul is saying this wall has no merit no weight no hope when jesus is in the middle of you it can break down all kinds of things that seem insurmountable in second corinthians 5 it Again, it's this wonderful text that talks about this ministry of reconciliation and how Jesus has initiated this ministry of reconciliation and now he commissions us in this ministry of reconciliation that there's a vertical dimension between us and God. There's a horizontal dimension between us and other people and we're called to this ministry of biblical peacemaking and reconciliation. In the recent uh, Witness magazine, it's an MB Mission uh, periodical that comes out. uh, Randy Friesen, he wrote about this and he He talks about three things that I like. He says when we are involved in biblical peacemaking, it requires three things. First of all, it requires that we see reality differently. In 2 Corinthians 4.18 it says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Because the reality is is that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. And sometimes when we're in these conflicts and we think that, while it's all about this other person and me, or these other people and me, or whatever the case may be. No, 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 it's this battle in the spiritual realm. Again, we'll see that further on in Ephesians chapter 6. But this battle in the heavenlies. And so, when we're involved in biblical peacemaking, we see reality differently. We see the situation differently. Not just for what it is, and not just in human eyes, but we see it in the spiritual way. Because what is seen now is only temporary. We have to see it with an eternal perspective. Secondly, when we're involved in biblical peacemaking, it requires that we see people differently. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16, it says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We see every person as a person made in the image of God. The person who reflects the image and the qualities and the characteristics of God and the glory of God. And when you see people differently in that way, it changes our conflict. It changes our unity, it, it draws us together through Christ. And then thirdly, we see ourselves differently. When we're involved in biblical peacemaking, and as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are Christ's ambassadors now. We have been, been given this great commission. We have been called to embrace this ministry of reconciliation that God has initiated through Jesus Christ, and we are commissioned into that as Christ's ambassadors. To now be those ambassadors, pointing people to God in this vertical reconciliation, as well as actively living in this horizontal reconciliation because of Jesus. You know, you can be physically close to somebody, but miles apart emotionally. You know that. We all know that. We've experienced that in some ways. Some of you know that only too well. We can have turmoil in our heart. We can work alongside somebody, and yet we can have this distance that we feel and that we know is there. We feel walls that we can't really identify, but they're there. Or sometimes we we see someone and we we see them as somebody who's really close to God and they, they do all the right things. They're always in church. They're giving of their time, their money, they're serving. They're just pouring in. And then you get to know them and you get to see a little bit behind the curtain a bit in their lives and you see some of the greed and the anger that is embedded within their hearts. You go, okay, that's different. Sometimes we don't like what we see when it comes to people that might be close to us but yet are really quite distant from us. So Sometimes it's hard to tell what near and far look like. In Luke chapter 15, and I'd encourage you to flip there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 15 is this story where Jesus, Jesus tells three parables or three stories And each of these stories is actually primarily talking about the love of the Heavenly Father. But he tells this story that many of you would know very well, and it's often called the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. But it's also often been called, I think appropriately so, the the story of the two lost sons. Because you see, both sons were lost. We don't have time to walk through the whole story this morning, but I want you to just think back from what you understand of that story and think about the response of each of the sons. If you know the story. You know that the younger son asked for his inheritance from his father early, which would have been incredibly offensive in that culture. His father gives it to him out of grace, and he goes off to a far land and wild living and until he comes to the end of himself and the end of his money. And then what does he do? He realizes, I need to repent, and I need to go back to my father and back to my home. And it's interesting. Here's the younger son's response. He's practicing his words. He's kind of rehearsing in his heart what he's going to say when he sees his father. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went out to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now, if you know the story, you know what? They threw a big party, and then the older son was offended. The older son was angry. He was out in the fields and wondering, what's all this party about? What's going on? And, and he's offended because he had always done all the right things. He had gone to the right places. He had always been there for his father. He lived right at home. He didn't leave and go away like the younger son did. He kind of went through and he kind of could tick the boxes of doing all the right things. And yet his heart was very far from his father. So the older brother's response is this. It says that the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him what the text says. As Jesus teaches about the father. So the younger son, what's his response? His response was repentance. He was far away distance-wise, but he was so close to his father in his heart. The older son was very close when it came to proximity, and he was always at home and he was there for his father, but his response was a hardened heart. So even though he was physically he was a long way off in terms of his relationship with his father and then we ask the question well what's the response of the father and that's the the beautiful picture in this story and i think of what jesus is primarily trying to get across is that the response of the father in each of the instances is that he runs to his son is that the father initiates and he goes to his younger son his father initiates and he goes to his older son And it's this picture of our Heavenly Father who comes after us and pursues us because of His grace. And it's because we have that kind of God who always initiates this reconciliation, that these walls get broken down, that we don't have to live in isolation from our Heavenly Father, we don't have to live in isolation from people around us because the walls have been broken down and grace is pouring out on us because of the love of the Father. And every one of us is called to have the heart of the Father to those both far and near. At the prayer summit that I was at this week, one of the questions that was asked by the facilitators was, what's the state of your heart? Now, that's a bit of a challenging question. A lot of us don't like that question. Even pastors don't like that question. But it's a good question to reflect on and just say, so what's the state of your heart? Are you far away or near to God? I think as, as human beings, it's true that we all need to belong. We all want community. We all have this desire to be together. Even us introverts need community. And yet we put up so many barriers from allowing people into our lives. We, we put up so many barriers even in the communities that we are part of, whether it be in the church or otherwise. And, and as you think about the church, we put up so many barriers from this unity and this shalom that God calls us to at times. Sometimes those barriers are, are simply male and female. and Some of the things that we, we think about and how we relate in that regard. Sometimes the barriers are between married and single people. There can be resentment and, and walls that are put up in, in either direction or misunderstanding in one way or the other. Sometimes the, the barriers are skin color and ethnic background. And even though we don't say it overtly, but we just sort of don't associate with people who are different than us. Or, or, or the barriers are socioeconomic. And, and again, even though we don't overtly do that or we don't think that we're that way, but we actually don't ever hang out with people in a different kind of wage bracket than us. For whatever reason. Or maybe it's the secondary theological issues that we get caught up in in the church. Whether it's women in leadership ministry, or whether it's the mode of baptism, or how we do communion, or other kinds of things that we kind of wrestle with. And these secondary theological issues, and we, we sort of, we don't really call names, but we sort of put people in camps, and then we sort of put up walls and barriers. It happens between denominations, it also happens even within churches. We can put up all kinds of barriers and destroy unity in all kinds of ways. And this passage points us again and again to the corporate church to be one. It challenges our individualism and it ta- challenges our, our tendency to put up these barriers and it says we need to live differently. different life. Let's finish off verse 19 to 22. So Paul continues he's, as he's talking. He's talking to these Gentiles and he says, Consequently, because of all this, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household." built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with, with Christ Jesus, uh, Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Do you know in, that in the temple in those days, there was an outside Gentile court and there were signs posted up that basically said to the Gentiles, you can't go past here. This is only for Jews. And so they were held back from going deep into the temple area, which was a very common community area, a place of, of the community for the city, and they could only go so far, and then they were held back by these signs. So that's their background. That's their history. That's what they're, they're reflecting on as they hear Paul read these words. And now here's the most remarkable thing about this gospel that would have been incomprehensible to both Jews and Gentiles, that those who are not allowed in the temple now are the temple. He's saying, you have become the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of the Most High. The Spirit of God lives within you and among you. You are God's covenant people. It's an astounding picture of how God takes those who are so far away and he draws them near and he says, you are part of this family. Jews and Gentiles joined together this brand new community that was formerly divided and is now reconciled in Christ, joined as a unified worshiping community. The name calling is over. Reconciliation has occurred and restoration has happened. And then he says, we just need to live in it. This is who you are, now just live in it. There's a part that we play in that. We have to live in that. Ephesians stresses so clearly, I think, these three things. And I got this from a book called Anabaptist Essentials. Palmer Palmer Becker writes this. And I think these are so true and foundational, not just for Anabaptism, but for what Ephesians is is teaching here. These three things. That at the center of our faith is Jesus. At the center of our life is community. And at the center of our work is reconciliation. Reconciliation. That these three things we see weaving through Ephesians over and over again. This is how we are called to live. So how do we respond to this kind of gospel? We respond with our head, our hands, and our hearts. A holistic response with our lives of how we connect to one another, serve with one another, bless one another. Not just proclaiming the gospel, but living the gospel. I want to invite the, the worship team up. As we do this closing exercise, and I want to lead us in prayer and i here 's what I want you to do I want you to I want you to look at an empty chair in front of you, maybe it 's beside you if you're sitting close to the front, you might have to look to the side a little bit, but I just want you to to fixate and look on an on an empty chair that's close by you for a minute. A number of weeks ago, we made the shift to two services because we had challenges with space we were kind of maxed out a number of Sundays were We weren't able to actually seat more people. So it was out of necessity, yes. But it was also out of faith and also out of this call to make room for those who are not yet here. To make room for those who are actually far away from God, who don't know God and are not connected to a church body in any way. What I want you to do is I want you to just pick one empty chair somewhere in the sanctuary and just look at it a little bit. And I want you to think of two people. I want you to first of all think of somebody who is far away from God who is very distant from God, who has nothing to do with the church, far away from God, and and just think of that person and that name and just, just take a minute to just offer a word of prayer for that person. That God would draw near. Now what I want you to do is I want you to look at that same chair and I want you to think of somebody... In the church. Somebody that you might say is very near to God, who is connected in a variety of ways, but where there are some dividing walls between you and them, some need for reconciliation, and just offer a prayer, however the Spirit of God leads you, in terms of breaking down those walls, that there might be steps towards unity and the ministry of reconciliation. Now lastly, I want you to just picture yourself in that chair. And I want you to ask the question, what's the state of my heart? Am I far from God or near to God? jesus we thank you we thank you for this ministry of of reconciliation that you have initiated that you have accomplished on the cross i pray lord that you would help us to live in that i pray lord that you would help us to be people who call out to those who are far from you that we would draw them near and that we would point them to you lord that we would live lives that they would see the evidence of nearness to god in real, vulnerable, raw, tangible way. And Lord, I pray that within the church that we would be ministers of reconciliation, that we would not allow dividing walls to come up between us. And that you would help us to walk in reconciliation in unity and biblical peacemaking among our fellow believers, Lord, in remarkable ways. Help us to be the church. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be honest in our assessment of where we are, whether we're far or are near to you and God that you would just come into our lives and draw near to us thank you that you are always faithfully present the Lord help us to see you and by your Holy Spirit may you do a work in our lives that only you can do in this ministry of reconciliation that you call us to help us to be your ambassadors the so Lord I lift up all of these prayers to you may you seal them in our hearts may you do a work that only you can do in Jesus name we pray amen